I've never seen so much id in a painting. Mm. Like, yeah, I want black. <laughs> I want blue and yellow next to it. <laughs> you know, he just throws it down. And he's, but he's crafting it. Um, it's like he allows himself everything. Hold on to your hats because something new is coming to Pep Talks. I'm beyond excited to unveil today, here, right now, that artist Elizabeth Condon has agreed to come on the podcast and return from time to time for a brand new segment called Elizabeth Condon Describes a Painting. This idea has been my fantasy ever since I met Elizabeth last year when the whole art world seemed to be on the Clubhouse app. I listened in one day as she was interviewing the painter, Carrie Moyer, and she had this direct and beautiful and passionate way of describing visual art that was kind of magic to behold. And ever since that day, I've hoped to capture that lightning in a bottle, or at least be adjacent to it. So I invited her, and she said yes. And so this is the very first one. If you don't know her yet, Elizabeth Condon is a painter originally from LA, but now living and working in Brooklyn. She works with natural imagery and abstraction in her synthetic landscapes. And she received her MFA from the School of the Art Institute in Chicago and has been awarded many prestigious grants, such as a Pollock Krasner Award and a Joan Mitchell Foundation grant. She also reviews exhibitions on her blog, Raggedy Ann's Foot, and frequently curates as well. She is represented by Emerson Dorsch in Miami and is currently working on a mural she designed for Norte Mars Mural Project in the Highland Park area of Brooklyn. You can find Elizabeth online at elizabethcondon.com and at elizabethcondon on Instagram. And don't forget, that's Elizabeth with an S, not a Z. I cannot wait for Elizabeth to tell us all about the painting she chose. Be back soon with Elizabeth. You are listening to Pep Talks for Artists, a podcast offering small words of encouragement to all those shuffling along the artist's road. I'm your host, Amy Toledo. Hello and welcome to Pep Talks, Elizabeth. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Oh, Amy, it's wonderful to be here. As you know, I've been so excited to begin the series with you, which is called Elizabeth Condon Describes a Painting, in honor of the beautiful and passionate way that you speak about art. Folks, we're in for a real treat. Today is our very first episode together, and I can't wait to hear which painting you're going to describe for us. Please remove the velvet drape and reveal who you chose. I chose Jules Olitsky. Oh, exciting. And the painting I chose is called Bilbao, Orange, Yellow, and Blue from 2004. It's acrylic on canvas, and it's 45 and a half inches tall by 39 and a half inches wide. Shall I continue? Please like do. I'd love to hear all about it. If people wanted to see the painting in real life right now, where would they go? They would have to go to New Berlin, New York. 
I saw the show at the Sam and Adele Golden Gallery at 188 Bell Road in New Berlin, New York. And that is in the headquarters of Golden Artist Colors. So cool. And do you remember what the title of the show was? Jules Olitsky, semicolon, late works. Oh, okay, good. And I, I actually have to confess, I didn't know very much about this painter or artist because I know they, they also worked in sculpture. Um, before you, you brought up this painting, do you know a bit about his background? Well, I know some. He was born in Ukraine. He, I can't remember how old he was when he moved to America, but I believe that he came to America with a family member sponsored by an uncle or something. And then he, on the GI Bill, he, he went to Paris Ooh. after he served. And I think you know a little bit about that. Oh, and... well, yeah, I don't know too much about his work, but I did Google the Wikipedia, you know, as, as I'd like to do the deepest of research um, before these. <laughs> and um, one of the fun facts I noted was that while in Paris on the GI Bill, he met the modern masters. So who even knows, I guess, I'm thinking Matisse, because who knows with the, who the modern masters are, but he met them and quote, engaged in a severe self-analysis, which involved painting while blindfolded to remove himself from all his customary habits and facility, which I was like, yeah, that's kind of awesome. Kind of badass. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> I totally agree. And he had a very traumatic childhood. It was rough. He was very poor. His mother remarried. I guess the stepfather was was a bit of a beast. And Ooh. he was he was really traumatized. So that painting blindfold was a way for him to, I suppose it was like a a suspension container when you go inside that salty water and black out the yeah. environment or something. And and so he I think that I think that his work throughout its many incarnations in tandem with the development of acrylic paint, specifically golden artist colors, from magna to the to the acrylics they're making now. So he, he was a big golden um acrylic user in his work. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So he, I mean the critic Karen Wilkin would characterize his work as moving from Monet through Pollock to his own vision. But I also think that he is, and I definitely get the Pollock association, which I'll talk about in a moment or why, but he, he started with Magna and that was what Frankenthaler that's what Frankenthaler used and all that, that ilk, oh, wow. that generation of painters. So it was like a water-based oil. It was very gummy, oh. pre-acrylic mix. So it- Did de Kooning use that? I don't think so. Because I heard he mixed his oil with water. And I'm just wondering if that was like, because he just used that type of paint or maybe that was his own invention. But anyway, never, never well, neither I, here nor there. <laughs> I actually heard rumors that he mixed mayonnaise with his paint. <gasps> Really? So maybe the water was to diffuse, like there's something about an oil dispersion, the way that, mm. and then, and then how water works with that. And maybe it's to get a certain kind of effect. Like I'm thinking of women or big schmeary splats <laughs> of paint that are striated, but like different colors. Yeah. Yeah. But then maybe <laughs> the water does something like incubate the mayonnaise. I don't know. Or makes it like a salad dressing. We need a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> But so it, cool. Yeah. So he was sort of a pioneer in the sense that he was trying out this new water-based oil paints at a time when it was all very new. 
Yes. And he really pushed it hard at like, not everybody paints blindfolded in a dark room. So <laughs> same with, you know, same with the way that um, we work with paint. I mean, most of us brush paint on a surface or maybe do something to that surface, but Jules Olitsky took it all the way. <laughs> he did. I was just like, dang. I was like, maybe I got to try that. Yeah. And happily, just so that New York-based listeners can go see a retrospective, a hundredth year retrospective of his work, which Golden is also saying that it's a centennial celebration, but it's also at Yare's gallery in the old McKee space and the oh. old Mary Boone space. Oh, interesting. I, yeah. I think that's the fifth floor of 547 Fifth Avenue. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I've been yeah. there. I, I haven't been there years. Yeah. Well, you can see quite a bit. I mean, it's great because the, the shows parenthesize the hallway. So you just got off the elevator and then it's, it's Olitsky all the way and <laughs> through every period of his career. So you could really get a good overview of his work. Oh, exciting. Yeah. And then I guess I was also fascinated in the Wikipedia at some of his painting techniques, but maybe we'll get to those a bit later. Do you want to just dive into the, the painting you selected? Yes, I, I would. Well, so I was just at the Golden Foundation doing the residency. And so during that process, you would go, residents go to the factory every day. And then, then it's a contained world with all these different facets. And so always on the way through near the entranceway was the gallery. So I would look every day at these paintings hung mid-wall surrounding the gallery. And so which painting was the most wonderful? Um, and it was this Bilbao orange, yellow, and blue painting from 2004. Now, prefacing this survey exhibition at the Salmon Adele Golden Foundation, I first saw late Jules Olitsky at the Kemper Museum in 2010. My aunt had died. I was in Kansas City. I needed some relief. I went to the Kemper and I saw this series called Jules Olitsky, Love and Disregard. Mm. I think it, I can't remember what the name of the show was, but it, but that was the name of the series. And it blew my eye mind. So <laughs> I saw these paintings and they were, I'd never seen anything like them before. They were insane and they spoke to me completely. Mm. So this painting, the Bilbao painting is an offshoot of that. But what's interesting is that it's smaller. So at 45 by 39, it's it's easel size, whereas these other paintings seemed a lot larger. But the scale of all of them, no matter what size, is immense. It's universal. It's literally a universe, a universe of layered, flung, teased, and spilled out paint. So on this particular painting, there is a brown undersurface, what the French would call a brown sauce with the burnt umber and the burnt sienna mixing together to make an optical deep and glowing brown. But here it's kind of faded out with some black. So anyway, a thin surface or what looks like a comparatively thin surface as it peeps through an overlayer, or shall I say 20 overlayers of really heavy thrown paint. So moving around the sides in what becomes in the late work a customary framing gesture is a pool but as a frame like a poured line that's very heavy like maybe i don't know uh an inch high and remember acrylic is water so half of that is getting lost so you can just imagine but about an inch high and then maybe two or three inches wide circling around and so it's a soft buttery yellow 
probably bismuth yellow, then flung around that on top of it and merging with it to make a green is a kind of cerulean blue or a cobalt. And that that that's two layers right there. Then he goes in again with the yellow, but he's he's stepping it up with a cad yellow medium and he's pouring this. I don't even know what to call this. It's a galaxy. It's a world. It's an enormous pour that he's then striding with red. Now, the striations are not so easy. I mean, to mix and pour the framing element and then the poured element mm -hmm. takes quite a bit of physical work, strength and massive amounts of paint, like literally buckets <laughs> of it. And so he worked very closely with Golden. So I think he probably had a really good, you know, main line of paint, <laughs> yeah. but, but he's, he's pouring it and then he's picking it up and moving the canvas around so that the color, so that the red inside the yellow mixes within it in a puddle of paint. And it then becomes kind of a line or even like a suminagashi technique where the red is kind of starting to striate and separate and create a marbling effect inside of the yellow. But the yellow is holding its own. And as he lifts the canvas, the heaviness of the pores start to bear down. And so you get these ripples like you would in a kind of uh, mangrove, like oh. a mangrove area where the water's getting foamy as it churns within the-, the... Florida reference there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I know, but it's the only thing I can think of with these weird, weird like lines that are created with this frothing generation that then ripples out into the water. Um, and so that's kind of the basic setup is the brown sauce. It looks relatively flat. At first, I thought it was related to his mitt painting series, which you can see in the Yare's exhibition, which is where he literally puts on baseball mitts or some kind of <laughs> mitts. Maybe they, I imagine them as baking mitts. Baking but, that's mitts my yeah. but, you know, he's just like laying on the paint. And those are very neutrally colored paintings. And it's all about the surface and the refraction of light off the iridescent paint and the surface and so forth. So that brown sauce has some of that element because it's the most neutral thing in the painting. But then the buttery yellow mixed with the cobalt blue and then a kind of green sometimes popping out of that. And then this huge uh, cad yellow medium and red combination. And it's a bright red. It's almost an orangey red. I'd say a light or a medium. You get like three different interlocking elements upon which he casts a stage of characters or what I, after having gotten to know him a little bit through interviews on his website and whatnot, I think are a cast of characters or elements of a passage through time and space mm. because he's a cosmic thinker and yeah. he's not stopping at anything. So <laughs> those characters manifest on the top left as a small pore relative to the rest of the pores a small turquoise pour, and then a slightly larger cerulean pour, and then a much larger crimson, alizarin crimson, and cerulean blue pour. And those are really nice colors together. And he's pouring them, he's pouring them next to these three pours. The turquoise is the top left about a foot down, maybe half a foot. The cerulean is next to it, as a larger companion. They're hovering over or about to enter into this alizarin crimson and cerulean blue pour, which is also hugging the edge of the top 
half of the painting hugging the edge next to a green unspooling, like and an ugly green, like a kind of foresty green, the kind that you say, oh, I can't use that. Or let me throw some sienna in there. An or, illegal green. Yeah, an illegal green. Like a, <laughs> like a green you'd paint a dumpster. Like an incredible hulk. Yeah, so it's exciting because it's so damn ugly. Like he's doing everything you're not supposed to do. Like don't use too much paint. Use paint lightly. Think about the lightness of the color. And you know, the funny thing is he is. I'm jumping ahead, but he is thinking about the lightness of the color, but just in a completely different way. So the green and that that green and the Elizabeth Crimson are just cut by the cerulean. It's crazy town, but really beautiful because it's like the biggest, darkest clot. And it's smashing into that yellow conflagration, the yellow and red, so that as the two colors merge, there's a merging of paint. You know, there's a merging of opposing poured forces. So he's thinking big here. Mm -hmm. That alizarin pour, we're going to travel down the left side of the painting. The big yellow pour is coming off the right top side and cascading almost all the way down until you get to the bottom eighth. And then a whole other thing starts happening, but hang on. <laughs> so so the alizarin crimson and the cerulean blue and the green, is it's infecting the area. But anyway, those are piled on top of the end point of the yellow pour from the top right as it reaches the mid left. But that yellow ochre, there's some yellow ochre stuck in there and it's it's embedded in the bigger yellow pour. So that yellow pour is, is taking everything in. And then you travel down the yellow framing device on the left of the painting, that you come to the end of the yellow pour, which has red fiery flames from the red edition. And then you dump into a little black pour at the bottom striated with white, which is like almost like a monitor of value, like, hi, we're the extreme values. And here are all the combinations of values that you have in front of you. And you can measure me with them like a grayscale. And then so that's that black pour and the yellow pour on top of the brown sauce situation. And then at the very bottom, there's the buttery yellow and cobalt blue framework. And then over on the right-hand side, creating a kind of counterpoint arcing motion from the yellow are two more pores. One, a kind of graphite. I think it's, um, oh, what's that? I never thought I'd forget this color. It's like a graphite micaceous iron oxide boom micaceous iron oxide pour which is super sexy because it's like it's like molten earth you know and it glitters but with a hard kind of dangerous glitter yeah. and then and then closing out the painting on that left sweep that's really just composed of various smaller pores as opposed to the ginormous upper right to lower left sweep of the massive yellow and red pour there's the micaceous iron oxide after the alizarin and cerulean. And then there's a cobalt and lighter green pour abutted against not the brown sauce ground, but like a, a light, like a burnt sienna, but a light, kind of a, a very bright burnt sienna. And then it's just immediately truncated by the buttery yellow frame with the cobalt blue spilled on top of it. So it's, it's really a journey, you know? I don't know about Bilbao, but it's 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 quite beautiful and the surface is just crusty yeah yeah um just checking the image out online and um i totally get where you're coming from with this whole idea of universe and galaxies because it almost feels like there's this imploding mashy sun or star squishing into all the planets around it 
in a big old floppy gooey mess. Uh, <laughs> so oh my I, God, that's a beautiful description. <laughs> well, just kind of taking off of your idea of the galaxies of the universe, it really, it did look very planetary to me in that frame. <laughs> and and it's interesting too, because online, you don't notice that ground, like you were saying, the ground is almost like that underpainting ground of like a Leonardo underpainting, like that kind of wash of umber on the canvas. And it still has that roughness. And then on top of it is this huge splat, solar system splat. <laughs> yeah. And it's such a, you know, it's such a profound, it's kind of like, you know, fuck you painting, you know, like I'm going to yeah. enter, like he has always had the agenda of painting in the air. You know, he used airbrush. He used, as I think you pointed out, leaf blowers. Well, I read on my Wikipedia, quote unquote, deep dive. Yeah. But I <laughs> he mean, used an electric leaf blower. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he just got his hands on anything. And, you know, this was a time, this was after Frank, well, it was during Frankenthaler in the Washington School. But Frankenthaler was using Magna Paint, and certainly her work shifted when she started using it because it did flatten the color, brighten is, the color. Sorry, is Magna paint, you said Magna is actually a watered oil, but not acrylic. It's specific. It's like, it's, it's moving towards acrylic, but it's an early primitive form. And so it still requires a solvent. Gotcha. And so that is weird, you know? So it's not what we have now, mm -hmm. but he kept pace with the technological changes. And so this painting from 2004 has all the advantages of the paint we're using now if we're acrylic painters. And so not only does he have real knowledge of the paint, but he has a grasp on the gels mm. and the mediums that, that boost the paint because getting this result with paint alone would, I think it would probably ruin the company, not to mention his own finances. I know. I was looking at this going like, how could you even afford to make a it? I mean, it's really squashy and built up. And and so a good point that he must have built up with some gels or modeling yeah. paste, modeling paste, maybe. Modeling paste, tar gel, I would imagine, mm. or some kind of paint pouring medium or not a high flow medium because this is slow, thick and gooey planetary paint. <laughs> this is this is slow time. This isn't anything. <laughs> this isn't anything in a hurry. Not even the Siennas are in a hurry. And by the way, I'm looking at detail shots that I took in the gallery and the alizarin crimson is coming on top of that brown sauce. But that brown sauce is actually pretty heavy, mm. even though it's the Sienna's. Yeah, like on the top left where yeah. the two little dots are, it's pretty heavy. And I just want to point out other weird details on the surface of the painting that in the big yellow goo mess with the red striding through like Sumanagashi, he's pouring on it twice. I think he's pouring it a pouring medium, which glides on in a thick and gooey, sexy way, <laughs> like tar gel, but it's not as gluey. It's like it's turgid, but it runs a little faster. And so the paint's going to bake in that. And then the products in the gel are going to tease the colors apart like a marbling effect. Mm -hmm. Because I think the marbling comes from like a kind of resinous surface in the ink when it's dipped into the bath. The water, you know, gets involved with the resin and then they, they can't get together. So they separate. Yeah. So I think that that's what's happening with this paint and the medium he's using. And he knows so much about it that he can, I know this because I tried doing it and I know how hard it is. So he can get the paint to separate in a really 
beautiful way. I mean, of course, he's leaving it to chance, but at the same time, he's he knows something about it. He knows it's going to be beautiful. So anyway, on top of one of those big yellow sweeps, what did you call it? A big star? Like a big star. But but now that you're talking about the marbling, I'm also getting a little bit of like those 1970s, like oil colored balloons <laughs> yes. that have like that kind of marbling mixed colors all over them. I'm, I'm getting a little bit of that. And you're right. It is it is a lot of finesse to keep those yellow and reds from homogenizing. Yeah. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. But I want to tell you about the top part of this port because he poured over it to kind of fix it or something like he did two pours to make this shape. But there's a couple. All right. So the pour has like two big blobs at the top and then two little blobs, one which runs off the side over the framing device of yellow and blue. And it's that blob. It's the armpit of that blob I want to talk about. <laughs> okay. And I just want to touch on it because, oh, listeners, I just have no idea what your experience is. So I wish you all the luck with this. But the yellow pores at the juncture of the top pore and the bottom pore part of the yellow star crashing into the planet is that the pores are bubbling. So he's got so much paint on here and the pores are bubbling because they need to sit. When you mix pores with the gel, they need to sit. And he didn't let it sit. He just poured it out. And there's just huge bubbles that look like small spacecraft flew into them <laughs> and, and disappeared inside of the star. <laughs> but then down below, there's the kind of the blue edge of the frame. The red goes into it a little and things get crazy. There's a big, almost like, I don't know, like raw sienna kind of drip, like that looks like bird, like bird Oh, that droppings. black smoky spot? Yes. It almost then, looks like a little like puff of smoke or something. Yes. And then there's a white dot. Like this is really close up on the painting. So I'm like, I've got my face in it and certainly my iPhone. <laughs> but there's a white splatter with little dots, like little pores in it. And that white splatter is just enough. It's humorous. It's like, oh, ha, well, yeah, there's some white. And I... <laughs> I really he's I mean, allowed some he's allowed the tiniest white like he's like I'll allow a fingernail of white in this situation he will and it was probably en route to the black and white at the bottom <laughs> but he really is just I mean you're just looking at pure material and you're looking at the history of acrylic paint in his career at the technical development and history of acrylic paint and how his career or his work is almost inextricable from this relationship with technology that gives us acrylic paint. And I remember when I started teaching, I taught a class at Bennington. I taught intermediate painting in 1997. And I went to the library because they had a fabulous library. And I got an old arts magazine and read and it. And he taught I... there. He did. And I did not know that. I had no idea, but there was this article by Louis Finkelstein written after he got back from a sabbatical in Rome. And he said in it, well, you know, oil painting is all anyone ever needs. And he was sort of <laughs> snorting at acrylic, like, you know, people think that you can get brooms out and, you know, <laughs> I, I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I'm like, this guy's really angry. He was talking about Jules. I know. I wonder. Jules writes in editorially and he's like, um, I feel attacked. <laughs> yeah, right. He didn't though. Oh no. I think he would just be like, ha ha ha, you know, but I mean, I think that acrylics were kind of a real outrage. I suppose in the way of somebody who only believed that painting was the only art would greet AR or something like that. 
But anyway, I puzzled over that for a long time, and now I fully understand. And so this through line that Karen Wilkin draws from, from Monet's overall surfaces in the late paintings to Pollock and the poor, I, she doesn't go into the French, but when Pollock pours, you know, it's calligraphic and the paint is actually operating. And then Olitsky is saying, well, I want a mark to hang suspended in the air. And that's when he starts painting with a, what do you call it? Uh, airbrush. Oh, the airbrush, and, right, right. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, you know, that's the lineage. But then he keeps going. And I guess I relate to this too, you know, because I paint in acrylic. But there's the desire to see the light side, and then there's the desire to see the heavy side or to get volume out of the paint. Mm -hmm. So that's what that's what he's starting to do in these light paintings. But what's really interesting is in tandem with the late paintings, he's also he's living in Florida. But he's also living in Vermont. So he has these two studios and yeah. he he loves Rembrandt. Um, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? It does. But how for you? Like, how do you? Well, in two ways. One, the love of that musty, mushroomy brown. Yeah. That he can't he can't go all the way into the bright color. He's got to have a little bit of keeping it real, one foot on the ground, one foot in the mushroom, earthy mushroom base. And then also just the coagulation of paint that almost becomes sculptural. Those are the two things that resonate for me. But how, how does how does it for you? I think in the I think that's really well said. And I think that that it is in the buildup, I guess a history, like when I think of Rembrandt's self-portrait in the frick and how mm -hmm. In a way, that's kind of the ultimate statement, isn't yeah. it? You know, like, yeah. hey, you know, what are you going to do? Like, <laughs> I've been painting my whole life. You know, take it or leave it, people. I don't care. When you look at me, I'm going to be looking back at you. Yeah. And, he, and, he, and he's got that nice belly. And, you know, it hit when it was hanging next to the Velasquez, the Velasquez just kind of, I mean, I love Velasquez, but he just kind of floated away. And there was Rembrandt, like, you know. I, you know, solid, just, yeah, solidly I'm, marching off the canvas, his I'm, belly protruding into the air in front of you. Like slightly <laughs> folded, you know, like I'm just going to stay here. So make of that what you will, you airy people. <laughs> and you so, Spaniards. Yeah. And I think there is, I mean, that one foot in the brown sauce is really right. And, and I guess the compositions and kind of the idea of history in terms of really ambitious and epic, an epic perspective that mm -hmm. that I first saw at the Kemper. It was like he had everything going. He had all the historical references. He had the paint and he had this kind of id. Mm -hmm. You know, like when I hear interviews mm -hmm. of him, the way he talks about women, you know, he's one of those 70s guys like, you know, it's the full uh, uh -huh. archetype of whatever happened in the past. Like he's very confident in his opinions. Yeah. And hey, man, you know, like, like Man Ray saying, I had a girl in a car, you know, it's like, that was the accoutrement of the 20th century painter and clearly <laughs> photographer. And so, you know, it's kind of like, he's that kind of a guy. But with that comes this, this, I've never seen so much id in a painting. Mm. Like, yeah, I want black. <laughs> I want blue and yellow next to it. <laughs> you know, he just throws it down. And he's, but he's crafting it. Um, it's like he allows himself everything. And it really is him. I've never seen paintings like this before. I still have never seen paintings like mm. this before. I feel like, you know, he was a very successful painter, but 
but I've always thought of him as the highest point of kitsch, which is very attractive to me because mm. I love kitsch. Kitsch and, because of the high key color. Yeah. And also the way that the paint is like, it's brushless painting. Okay. But it's just so uh, aggressive, mm. I guess, that it is so uncontrolled. It's, uh, I mean, I know now that it's controlled, but it feels or looks very untrammeled mm -hmm. at first sight. It, it just looks like somebody flung a bunch of paint and you really have to deal with that in yeah. the same way that you have to deal with the Rembrandt. Like you can ignore it, but it's staring at you. The physicality. Yeah. And that <laughs> physicality is so incredibly aggressive, but it's also very, I don't know how to pronounce this word, but balletic, you know, ballet. Oh ballet, yeah. Like ballet like, <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's just filled with cosmos. I don't know what else to say. I, I want to keep saying this over and over because because you can't see the painting. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. hopefully after you describe a painting, people will flock to their Googles. Yeah, I hope you. so. I or hope or so. if you happen to be in, in New York, you could go check it out at the show. Yeah. Or you could go to Yare's. Oh, and yeah, there's oh, an Yare's. even later one, which is so over the top. But I'm so <laughs> attached to this one. If you go to the back room of the old Mary Boone space and go into the tiny room, they have literally shoved like three ginormous paintings from different time <laughs> periods together. And the 60s period is very flat, graphic. You know, it's Frankenthalerian. And then by the 80s and the 90s and the aughts, oh, he's just shoveling it on. And the, I think that late painting at Yares is 2007 and the other ones are 60s. But what happens is that instead of looking like three paintings crammed into a room, you literally enter the Joan Mitchell environment or the yeah. Frankenthaler where the, everybody's in a room of paintings surrounded, literally buried in their work. Yeah. And I love in a way when you hear of artists who are at the end of their output, you know, the late paintings, quote unquote, and he's kicking it up a notch, you know, like he's really reaching for it in this very late stage. Like he's not, you know, going quietly into that good night. <laughs> he is not. And he is like really alive. And he talks about the life force a lot. It's what I responded to in his work giving oneself absolute permission. And also he was a very spiritual person. I think the trauma and the, you know, trust to paint blindfolded and what he really put himself through pace wise, material wise, because he was a ginormous producer, because it was all process. And he, I think he is open about like he just credits God with his paintings. Like he oh, considers. Does he feel like he's the hand? Yes. The he monkey's paw a little bit like a medium sort of to these visions. I, I don't know if they're visions, but I think he's, but to the process, Ooh. but the vision is coming from landscape painting, like Corot like period, if not Corot. Um, there's a few of his favorites, Rembrandt being one. And then we know Pollock and the French trajectory. I the modern masters. The modern masters. <laughs> but there's a gravitas and yet an exuberance that clearly he's very free. So if he's enacting a higher vision or articulating a vision from the process of trust and real self, not self-abandonment, but in the sense of Guston's quote, you know, about Song Dynasty painting when all your ancestors leave the room and then yeah. you leave the room, that kind of idea. Um, if he's really letting that happen and it looks like he is, I haven't seen this taken to such an extreme. And I haven't heard too many artists talk that way either, at least of late. It's more like surrealism or Hilma Alf Klimt or something. 
Well, that's true that like the medium or the conscientious controlling of the subconscious or the dream state. But recently I've been actually talking to a lot of artists who work in collage and they 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 speak in the same way, uh, you know, because the the pile. <laughs> I was just recently speaking to the artist Paula Wilson. We were talking about how the collage pile on the table is almost like a compost of the universe. And then it yields new fruit on its own without being manipulated. And so I think beyond the kind of mediumship of Hilma F. Clint or other kind of things where, you know, you're thinking there's this outside player working through you and you're the monkey's paw, there is sort of an interest in letting things make themselves. Yes. Hearing. But I think about that as a kind of, yes, like a recycling and a composting and a, and kind of almost a surrealist automatism. It's exactly like automatism, but even to the point where you're not even starting, you're just looking at a pile and then you see things create themselves. And I've been hearing more and more people say that. And I wonder, I mean, I don't know, my ear is on the street, but I don't yeah, know, yeah. It might fizzle out, but it does seem like a lot of people are kind of, it's in the air a little. Divination. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, I think it's just the straight out acknowledgement of God. That's like, I mean, that's like, but I think the idea of painting is as a prayer too. It's almost as if the collage artists, and I imagine by you, you among them, would open yourselves fully to receiving, yes. to be in a state of receiving. Yeah. I, and I so that. I relate to Jules, maybe not in the religious way, because I'm, I'm not really religious at all, but the idea that there is something very fertile in being a conduit of sorts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I agree. And I think anybody serious about painting or collage would agree. I mean, you have to get out of the way. Yeah, you have to get out of your yeah, own way. Yeah, yeah. And he would pray. He would pray for that. He's often quoted as saying that even on film. So it can be verified. I read about Agnes Pelton doing that also. She would pray for help. Sometimes she would pray to a painting of her dead mother. <laughs> but she, wow. would, she would pray for help to like finish paintings. And it's all very fascinating to me. Well, it is strange with the painting, how you're, or whatever you're working on, you're in the middle of it and suddenly it leaves you. Yeah. And it really is demanding of a reframe. And in Chinese, I mean, in ink brush painting, that is absolutely true. Like you, you learn a set as a child, you learn these small idioms like bamboo or orchid or something like that. And then you, you encode them in body memory. Mm -hmm. And then the way that you paint, it's a merger of expressionism and imagery, a kind of, you know, Birchfieldian reference. And Birchfield was a big fan of Chinese painting. So oh, yeah, love yeah, myself and, some Birchy. Oh, my God. Is my oh, favorite. oh my, he, he is, wasn't afraid to be corny either. Like you're talking about kitsch. Yep. He would kind of let it go corny. Let it be a spectrum, be a spectrum. And I, I appreciate that in an artist, like you're saying, like when you really let it all go and try everything, go to the max, see what happens. I find that brave. I, I agree. And I feel like that's what I want. I want it for myself and I want it for the paintings that I look at. Mm -hmm. And I want, you know, I really want to see somebody in there as Elizabeth Murray said of Cezanne, that somebody's home. <laughs> I never heard that quote. That's it's a great a one. <laughs> video data bank interview. It's an old pamphlet I have from grad school. God, I love that. I love a quote. Yeah. I love a good quote. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> I also did read a little bit on, on that same uh, lauded Wikipedia page that the writer Norman L. Kleeblatt said that he used a lot of unlikely clashes of intense and artificial looking colors 
recalling Delacroix. Oh, interesting. That I makes know. that's a sharp eye. Oh, that, that's a present. Because I wasn't, I was like, Delacroix, how so? I don't really un- get the oh, connection. Oh, I think that Delacroix was a big color. You know, he was a big color explorer. He's kind of known for it, but I can't remember what. I mean, I think he is working a pretty wide range of colors side by side. I feel like Delacroix, I always think of him as browns. No, I mean, right. He's painting on the brown sauce and he's working up from glazes, but he's also painting vivid reds and greens. And he's he's a very emotional painter. And I think think he's kind of recognized, especially in that Met survey or retrospective, that that he was so passionate. He had an emotional sense of color and he was in his day. He pushed it. And there's that wonderful journal by him um, that it's just full of self-doubt where he'll say like, I keep having ideas, but then I never make anything with them. And then they just keep collecting in a drawer. And then literally he's like, I I have a procrastination problem. Like he's so self-doubting and wonderful. Like you just fall in love with him in this journal. So I can see the passion, the passionate color thing rings really true to me. Yeah. And I think that he, I'm just going to say that at that Met show, there was a horse painting in the last room and that horse's ass was so, (laughs) I mean, I was like, you guys should, you guys should have this over 18. Like he painted that so erotically. Not safe for work. (laughs) I I mean, he's just a really, I mean, he can really. Talk about getting out of yourself. He he really can feel the force with his brown, fusty colors. But and, <laughs> and he can get out of that brown. I think he gets out. He has a he uses a Veronese green. I oh. guess Veronese did too. But I mean, it's kind of that color, like a kind of strident sort of emerald green. Like a cool light green. Yeah, but it's bright and it's solid. You know, there's no transparency or subtlety in it. It's, I mean, certainly in his hands. And he plays it with a kind of deep red, maybe an alizarin or somewhere like a step up from alizarin, like a Mm -hmm. cad red deep. And so he is an adventurer, you know, like those ornate paintings I think like the sultan paintings oh yeah you know the odalisks you know lounging and I mean those are very wild full of motion a woman with her arms being held back and a knife at her throat in the (laughs) corner I mean this stuff was like I know (laughs) so so I think you know first the horse butt and now this I know I mean I think he's really I think the writer that you quote is really holding art history to something. And I wanted, I do have a quote that Olitsky read himself. Oh yeah, please. Yeah, by G.K. Chesterton. There is at the back of every artist's mind something like a pattern and a type of architecture. The original quality in any man of imagination is imagery. It is a thing like the landscape of his dreams, the sort of world he would like to make or in which he would like to wander. The strange flora and fauna, his own secret planet, the sort of thing he likes to think about. This general atmosphere and pattern or structure of growth governs all his creations, however varied. So that was Olitsky talking. Yeah. It's not Olitsky's words. It's Olitsky quoting G.K. Chesterton. Okay. And it's like God's great creation a little bit. Yeah. But it's also like an archetype. 
And don't you find as an artist that there's something in the back of your mind that in the way that you construct or in the way that you lay down paint or a collage, that there's a kind of something that that runs through? Like, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, like a front and a back or a certain color combination or a touch, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, and so he has these two pores, the, the turquoise and the cerulean pour. He has the pattern on one side and the type of architecture on another. So then when I look at the yellow and red star again, I see the architecture as the way that the point and counterpoint are functioning within the miasmic cosmic field. But then I also see the literal meaning of pattern as a kind of blurring of paint and the play of color and value against each other in a kind of shadow-like, alley-like configuration, striation. I love what you said about the archetype that every artist has. To me, it's almost like that Rembrandt moment where you want to see yourself come off the work and stand in front of you. And you either, you might chuckle, laugh, be horrified, uh, get turned on, might be upset or happy, who knows, but you need to have some recognition of yourself coming out of it and you can't architect it. And I think it's interesting to hear him talk about this sort of creation of the varied worlds in the in the universe, on the planet, and him sort of stepping into those shoes and trying to create his own self kind of golem out of it. I'm going to jump on that. And it makes me think of him blindfolded. And it also makes me think of what you were saying about collage materials gathering and also about, I don't know how I'm going to put this together, but all right. So blindfolded collage piles and and electric leaf blowers. Well, there's that. But I'm <laughs> gonna put that. I'm gonna put that down for now. I just say, okay. So you know, the blindfolding might be because he was too afraid to see himself, and maybe, yeah. maybe that's where doubt. Maybe doubt mm -hmm. is the great mm -hmm. like Valium, mm -hmm. you know, for that kind of fear. Yes. And then Rembrandt at the end is like, and Goya. They just come out. They're like over I'm throwing, it. I'm it's, throwing Goya in there just for fun because he's they're like, so it's, good. I'm over it. I'm not worrying anymore. They become fearless. They become fearless. And that is what I love. That's what I loved in that show at the Kemper. And that's what I love about this painting. And I was with two colleagues when I saw this show, my golden colleagues. Um, and so we all looked at it together and they were just like, you know, oh my God, what? <laughs> like they, you know, they, they were not. They were not honing the fine points. So, I mean, there's also in terms of challenge or stepping out in front of oneself and bravery and freedom, there is this kind of freedom in the sense that we all know we're going to die. We also all know that what we do may not matter ever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, but like giving it everything we have anyway, not only yep. in Olitsky's case with our lifestyle and our choices, but also just with paint. Yeah. Like, this is a lot of paint on this. I mean, it's it's a commitment. Like that painting is a commitment. That is not just like a dashed off sketch. Like that was a lot of money, a lot of time. You know, that was basically like months of curing and drying and then pouring. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. He committed. So <laughs> he did commit, but he threw everything in there and he cycled through. And I guess I've never seen... This is personal, I suppose, but I don't see that very often, or I don't recognize it in the way that I recognized it in him. And it was a real gift. The cycling through in what way? Like he, he was a restless bastard. 
he didn't hone a vision. Like, you know, he didn't say I'm a figure painter and I'm going, I'm going to go deeper and deeper into figuration mm. until I become Rembrandt. He was like, eh, okay, I want painting to float. I want painting to be suspended, you know, with my airbrush. No, I think I'm going to get the leaf blower out and suspend it that way, but like move it around. <laughs> then, oh, wait, I'm on the earth now. I like that. I'm going to put some mitts on and just paw inside of the earth. <laughs> nope, I'm going all the way in. I'm going into the inner galaxy that exists within the earth and in my mind. And I'm going, I'm going into my architectural landscape. But because the architecture of the compositions really do have a topographical reference, which is also very meaningful to me because the paint itself becomes craggy. And then the paintings are also about material. They are literally about the history of material. And then they're just about the way material acts because the material is doing the painting. It's, it's just all that is so personally meaningful to me, frosted with 70s kitsch that I just, you know, it's just <laughs> the like, oily balloon. But, so, but I wanted to just go back because I loved what you said about the cycling and the fearless cycling, the restless eye. Um, it, it struck me recently, I've been thinking a lot about the difference between actors and artists and how an actor, take Meryl Streep, for example, she's excited the the weirder and harder and more challenging the part. So she's mastered one part. She's played, you know, Sophie's Choice done great. Now she's she's got to do... Uh, is it terms of endearment or I might be getting their names wrong, but she, no, no, she's but, in, I think. but actors love change and challenges and things that are very hard. And oftentimes, um, and a very experienced actor, a famous actor, even will take a coach later on in life to just work on something so that they can really jump into something fresh and new. And then sometimes I feel like in the art world, that sort of style of life is poo-pooed. Like it's more the thing to kind of pick a lane and stay in it. And, and it's sort of thought of as weird if you seek teaching or mentorship beyond school. And I, I, I know, I just take umbrage with that. And, and when you were talking about Olitsky's restless eye, I thought, oh, reminds me of like an actor in that way. The pleasure of making art is the challenge. I totally agree. I completely agree. And it's funny, I grew up around celebs in LA. Oh, you did? So I do know actors and I do know, you know, I, I mean, I certainly don't know the craft, but I certainly understand. I mean, I love what you're saying about that, but I just had never thought about that in quite that way. And so many actors are now painting, but, it, but I think <laughs> always, I think in the art world, it's seen as not serious to change up the work. Yes. And I get that because people can't find their own purchase. And, you know, it begs the question of what's home in a painting. You know, where do we find ourselves in the painting? Yeah. And I get, but I, it's rare that I've seen somebody change as much as Olitsky. But there's a through there's line. A yeah, yeah. There's a thread. Yeah, there's a thread. He's in all of them. And the other thing is that we see in terms of museum retrospectives, you know, we see we see them and we see gallery shows all the time that are just, well, this is like 50 years and it's, it's a cherry pick satisfying. It's a cherry yeah. picked uh, look through history, which is not reality. Yeah, right. Like a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a tightly edited. And so it's wonderful for the public to be introduced to an artist that way. But for artists who are still finding their way, it can be very disorienting to see this perfect line of of masterpieces marching along the walls. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, with the collapsing of the kind of academic model that we've had for so many years that really was just flourishing in the 70s run by Olitsky and everybody else. <laughs> Those I, guys. Although, although I bet he was a really great teacher. 
but I, I mean, I'm sure he just let the kids go, but, um, <laughs> but in any event, you know, that, that model has really collapsed in favor of something like the Crit Club or, yeah. you know, people from different industries mixing in and the, the boundaries being pretty much taken away. Um, shout um, out to Catherine Haggerty's NYC Crit Club. If you guys yeah. uh, don't know it yet, it's a wonderful uh, resource for artists. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and so, well, I don't know. I mean, I just think that that's maybe a response to that kind of strict editing. Yeah. Um, so I also admire that about Jules Olitsky. Yeah. The courage to uh, follow what challenges him. Yeah. I really am just, I'm really into him right now. It's just a matter of negotiating this, the way that he painted really like, because I was just at the golden residency. So, and that's a shout out to the golden residency. Oh yes. That's a major shout out and a major shout out to great old Jules, Jules Olitsky in this great painting. It um, must weigh a ton. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know it's, it's really it, heavy. It's, it's not like just a couple nails. Listen, I just have to say something about the micaceous iron oxide. That is like a glittery graphite molten earth. And then on top of this yellow star, which is dry and plasticky, you get this molten earth. I mean, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful move. It's like a gray color. That smoky gray? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's such a strange off note because not off in a bad way, but in a delicious way. Because it's, everything else is a little bit creamy. Yes, and that creamy is what I'm describing as plasticky, but that's like the earth. Yeah. That's like the earth. And then the black at the bottom is the primordial mass. And then everything else is either water or fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's really, you know, he's, he's deft like that. Like, I think, I think when I was younger, I was very dismissive of these kinds of paintings, you know, oh, this is corporate art because I was trained in the, I mean, I first went to school in the late seventies. So I studied with, you know, like Chris Burden and, you know, oh, really yeah. conceptual people. So almost like, kind let's, of like, let's break the system. Yeah. Yeah. And let's make statements, you know, yeah. let's get social process. Isn't social. People don't do process. This is Nobody like candy land. It's not yeah, important. Yeah. 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 And then that point of coming back to yourself or standing in front of your painting, you know, I suppose there's so much self-editing as a student, at least on my part, you know, I'm really going into it now because it's completely what I grew up with. And I mean, I'm really turned on by these kitschy colors. Yeah, I mean, to me, it's an amazing painting and yeah. I've gotten so much out of just hearing you describe it. Thank oh. you so much for opening my eyes to Jules. <laughs> oh my God. I hope you go to Yaris post taste. I'm going to go. Oh, oh good. <laughs> so, um, well, Elizabeth, thank you so much for telling us about Jules Olitsky and this incredible painting, Wandering Bilbao, Orange, Yellow, and Blue, that is currently up at the Sam and Adele Golden Foundation Gallery. And before I let you go, I wanted to ask you, I know you have a project coming up and you just got back yourself from the Golden Residency. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your upcoming mural project and how the residency was? So the residency was amazing. It was a month, like a very fast and intense month. There's three people on the residency. I was with Wen Mengyu from Taipei and Marcelo Pope. So I was with them and they were really great. And so the Golden Residency is one of three residencies in the United States that is materials and skills based. So it's kind of like Kohler or the glass, Corning glass. Corning, work. okay. Sherry Mendelssohn did it. Shout out to Sherry oh, Mendelssohn. Yeah. Love, love Sherry. Yeah, great artist. Great yeah. artist. Works in plastic and glass. 
Golden is like that. You're in a factory setting, but you live in a barn that's a live workspace that's incredibly designed. What I loved most about the residency, aside from learning so much about golden paint, which I wanted to understand the technical aspect of, because of painters like Jules Olitsky, yeah. like how on earth did he make it? Yeah. Now I can actually take a shot at knowing how he made it and, and really understanding that in a technical way that even technically he's pushing the materials so hard. And just knowing that adds an extra layer to the work. But coming back to the residency, so everything there is made for making. So if you cut a tomato in the kitchen, the knife you're using, you're like, where did they get this? <laughs> it's so great. Like, no, I never knew a kitchen knife could be that good. And, then, and, so, and also when you're working in the studio, which is also set up with tarps, and I really learned how to set up a studio properly. You know, they really teach you interesting things. And they have a library upstairs, a lending library of any golden product, custom or market that you could ever want available. <laughs> and I can't tell you how thrilling it is to say, I'd like to try that Corbet Green QRR watercolor and go upstairs and open the glass case <laughs> and take out whatever I wanted. Because usually you have to ask somebody at the front desk and it's really busy. So it was quite thrilling. And with that kind of limitless access to material, I could I could just go crazy. And yeah. I did. And it was really fabulous. So it's a great residency. You buy your own food and you cook and there's three of you. And then you have your own bed and bath. It's quite luxurious, but doable. Like there's no dress up. You're living in New Berlin, New York. It's upstate New York. <laughs> right. It's the country. You know, you just dress for the weather and whatnot. There's trails on the property. It's very special. And you have real access to the Goldens. They are generous, helpful, focused. And then you really see kind of what this life is with technical people who really know about the product, make the product, work with people on the product and so forth. And so I highly recommend it if you're interested in that kind of on-site residency. And like almost materials forward, like experimentation is encouraged and you have access to almost these like conservator or people with scientific knowledge of things. You could say, oh, could I put that on top of that? And instead of just Googling it futilely and finding a weird message board where guys are yelling at each other, you could actually get the answer. You know what? It's, it's, it's I'm going to, I'm going to take you one. I'm going to raise you one. They give you, they give you demonstrations. Wow. Yeah. Like you get actual, they, they're called technicals. They're not tutorials, but with the three of you, you get, like, we're sitting there just like, how can you be telling us all this? Like they're essentially telling us they're just handing you the keys to the kingdom. Like, here, you know, like, here's how it's made. So polymers, you know, so they're like, so there's structures, I suppose it's like oil anyway, but you know, so the structures have to fuse oh, and it takes a couple days and the paint is always alive. So it's alive a lot longer than people think. So I'm looking at this pattern behind you, which is like a, like a oh, polymer it's, pattern. It's, it's my non-completed soundproofing hexagon wall. So it's, it's only partially filled in. It looks really 70s and I love it. It's I only so buy beautiful. 12 at a time and then I slowly put them up and then I just wait, but eventually I'll fill it up. It's exciting. <laughs> then I'll be a I'm, real professional. Well, it's, <laughs> I'm impressed with it as an artwork. So, I think I should so, leave it. Um, and they also own Williamsburg oil paint. Yes, they, because oil paint too. Williamsburg was manufactured. My husband used to be the paint maker for Williamsburg oh, in the really? 90s. Yeah, from 96 to about 2000. Oh, and what's your husband's name? Oh, Carl Kelly. And so... That was owned and started by Carl Plansky, who was a painter and attended the New York Studio School and was always in New York. 
And then Ina's sister, I believe, sold it to Golden or his sister sold it to Golden after Carl passed away. And Carl was kind of a New York legend. And yeah. I think there were a few paint makers around town and he worked with Milton Resnick and Pat oh, Pasloff. Yeah. And so yeah. when my Carl was making paint, Pat Pasloff would call and say, is Carl there? I need paint. She'd say, you know, back in my day, people in New York didn't need, didn't need CD players. They didn't need heat. They didn't need hot water. We went along without it. So Imagine we- now how she would be reacting to cell phones. She would be well- very outraged. Uh, yes, of course. Except she did live in that really incredible synagogue. I mean, God, those. I mean, I mean, those guys—they were the real deal. And a shout out to to Pat Pasloff and Milton Resnick for that fabulous foundation, yeah. the Resnick Foundation. But anyway, um, I digress. So after Carl passed away, a living legend of his own, and a podcast should be made about him one day. But um, then they sold it. And now they have the paint maker there. I'm just spacing on his name, but he's really lovely and he's an incredible painter. Yeah, they're representing acrylic. They're representing oil. They're representing watercolor. Yeah. Now. They have a patent on a color that's different than other watercolors. And then they also have a mural paint that I'm going to try tomorrow. Oh, because yes. they Tell sent- us about your mural. Tell us all about your exciting new mural with Norte Mar. I can't wait to hear more. Okay, so I got back from the Golden Foundation maybe two weeks ago, and the next day I started a mural project in Highland Park, which is in Cypress Hills, where Norte Mar is based in East New York. And Norte Mar has begun this initiative. We started in the summer with a team, a crew that comes in and out, and we're painting murals in the neighborhood, and it has been a profound experience. So The first lead artist was Kiana Vega, who lives in the neighborhood, and she did a mural on Crescent Street, and she and I worked closely on that mural. And then Estefania Velez Rodriguez, who shows at Praxis Gallery, she was lead designer on Pine Street, 68 Pine or something. And now we're in Highland Park. On the handball court, there's these two walls that flank it. And one's like 12 feet by, I don't even know, like 178 feet, like some crazy wacko dimension. And then the other one is like 98 feet. I mean, we're talking huge scale. But, and what but street is it on? What- it's on, you exit at um, Cleveland on the J train okay. and you walk up like three or four blocks and you're right in the park. And if you just take that pathway right off Cleveland and sail around the tennis courts, you'll find it at the handball court. And the park was designed by Frederick Law Olmsted. Oh. And it's got these huge, like glamorous, I think it was like 1860 or 1870. I'm not. Like Central Park, Prospect Park. Yeah. And maybe it was Olmsted's cousin. There might have been a little thing there, but yeah. he he's was, like, yeah, it's by Olmsted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> we don't have to get into the initials, but the <laughs> but the stairways are broad and expansive, and they they hug areas of the park. And these walls do the same thing with the handball court. So the handball court is left plain, but we are actively in it. We have one wall almost done. We'll finish it this weekend. We'll have eight people working on it. Diana's on board. Estefania's on board. We have Angel Garcia, who is a very reputable, excellent muralist in the neighborhood. And I'm really like, it's an honor because I am a total novice at this stuff. And yeah, I would be I'm, too. Yeah. And I'm leading this project and he's really helping me a lot, as is Paula Part, who's an artist there and has a solo show at Norte Mar right now. And as part of that solo show, he's featuring the muralists in the back. What is the so, mural imagery that you're working on? So, of course, there's a lattice. 
So it's literally like this huge lattice. And so it kind of echoes the chain park fence and the Ah, tennis court. But I basically, I just wanted to do so much lattice that you, (laughs) and Angel and Paula snapped, lined that out. And Carl Kelly, my husband, I mean, they really just worked. And I mean, it just took forever. It took like a full day and a half. And so then, it's like a crisscross pattern. Yeah. And then are there like natural elements? Because oftentimes you use. I, yeah. There's, there's two stairways to flank some flowers that are in the garden. And then we're about to get wild. You know, we might throw some, <laughs> ten- we might throw some tennis balls. Some in tennis balls. Like, well, I also, <laughs> I also spent yesterday making two massive trees in, in actually brown sauce palette. <laughs> so right, yeah. Rembrandt yeah. would be like, wink, wink, love it. Yeah. He'd be like, mm, that looks, <laughs> you know, give it a little more form. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so those trees are really fun. And so, you know, we have more to come, but mostly it's going to be trees. And you out. said it'll be finished by this weekend. That's... No, it'll be one wall will be finished. Oh, okay. So it's going to yeah, be but, a little while longer. Yeah, we're giving ourselves that. I mean, hopefully it will be, but it's, you know, murals are, they have their own lives and we just, you know. The mural we'll... is like the universe and you're just open to receiving. <laughs> yeah, it truly is. It truly is. And you're on the spot. You know what I mean? It's happening in real time. So like at least with the painting, you can do, if, yeah. if all else fails, you can turn it, you know. Yes, yes, so, exactly. So it's called Lattice Views and it's a reflection of the park. Like it's straight up just a love song to the neighborhood. And But I have to just say something about the profound process of working live with a crew. It is a really incredible experience to have strangers come up to you and say, they say all sorts of things, but they really generally love it. And yeah. they're curious about the imagery and they see their light and they tell you a little bit about themselves. And it's it's a really serious, serious thing. And it, it really moves me now because I started focusing on the lattice during the pandemic, just in the studio and to bring it live and to have people kind of, I, I, there's something about the whole situation that just feels really good after the pandemic. Yeah. Like it was almost like something you did in isolation that now you're using as a symbol for community. Exactly. A beautiful transformation. Like the structure has transformed itself because it was a questioning of structure. You know, can we lose geometry? Can we bend it? Can we can we start refolding things another way? So it's happening. But through this yeah. live painting, you know, maybe through the process this time. That's exciting. That's really, really exciting. Well, I hope if anyone's in New York, please go visit the mural when it decides and it deems itself complete. And also, if you're not in New York, of course, you could look at Elizabeth's website. And I wanted to ask you if you could just say um, where people can find you online. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm certainly on Instagram. And Instagram is the gateway to everything because of the link. And I'm at Elizabeth with an S Condon, just E-L-I-S-A-B-E-T-H-C-O-N-D-O-N, because the S is a big trip up for people. (laughs) And then then the website is Elizabeth Condon. Everything is Elizabeth Condon. It sounds like a common name, but because of the S... Yeah, you kind of get you got to get your own handle. Even so, I get it's kind of great, but it's also <laughs> kind of maddening. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. for the Z and they can't find you. Yeah, yeah. It's like, no, no, I'm over here. I'm over here. They're finding over. some other lame Elizabeth. No, there's a but there is another Elizabeth Condon with an S. Yeah, she's in politics in the Midwest. I mean, she's totally cool. Like, it's, <laughs> Oh, OK. So that's yeah. good. I'm yeah. sorry I called her lame. <laughs> um, well, thank you so, so much for Thank joining you. me today. It was really fun to crash the champagne over the hall of our <laughs> first endeavor. 
Elizabeth Condon describes the painting, and it was, to me, a smashing success. Can't wait for more. And I have to say that this was beyond, beyond my hopes and dreams. It was so good. Oh, my God. And I loved every single word. I look so much forward to our next segment in the series. And so I just wanted to say thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. And I would really like to thank you. Thank you for starting this and cheers. Cheers. Honk, honk. That's what the, <laughs> that's what the ship is saying. <laughs> let it sail. Let it sail. Yes, let it sail. Okay, bye. Bye. You've been listening to Pep Talks for Artists. A super big thank you to Elizabeth Condon for generously agreeing to share her love of painting with me. I loved every second of that. My dream has come true. Please keep up with Elizabeth online at her website, elizabethcondon.com, and on Instagram, at Elizabeth Condon. And if you're in New York, check out her mural at Norte Mar in Brooklyn. You can find me and the podcast on Instagram, at Pep Talks for Artists. Please follow me there to see the images that go with each episode, including this one. Because as artists, we are visual people. I really appreciate you stopping by, and I'll see you next time. There was a horse painting in the last room and that horse's ass was so, I mean, I was like, you guys should, you guys should have this over 18.